Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew chapter 12 here, the first 14 verses. We're going to talk about some Sabbatarian controversies that the Pharisees had with Jesus. He is ministering now. He's, he's already sent his 12 apostles out of their first missionary journey all through Galilee, and now he's he's ministering uh, with other disciples, apparently. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. Now, they were probably going to a synagogue somewhere to teach since it was the Sabbath day. It's debated as to what Sabbath this was. Some people say it was a not a weekly Sabbath, but a Sabbath, a Passover Sabbath, a special Sabbath of the festival. I'm not going to get into that. It's very, very complicated. But it sort of sets the time, if that's true, right around the time of the Passover, which is in the springtime. And so they're going through the grain fields. They get hungry. They pick some grain, and they rub it, and they eat it. Now, the grain fields, probably barley, because that's typically tip, the typical harvest that coincides with the Passover season, somewhere in March or April. Now, they had a perfectly good reason to pick that grain. It was because they were hungry. It was necessity. They were not just going in there to do vandalism. Matthew chapter 12, verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees apparently were following behind him, just watching him, just tracking him. Can you imagine everywhere you go, hostile eyes, listening to every word, watching your every move, and hostile ears, listening to every word you say. So here they say, Ah, we've got him now. He's working on the Sabbath. He's doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, little reconciliation harmony problem here. The parallel passage in Luke says that the Pharisees said to them, to the disciples here, the Pharisees said their complaint to Jesus himself. To reconcile, this is very easy for all of you who want to say that there's errors in the Bible. The Pharisees complained first to Jesus and then to the disciples, or first to the disciples and then to Jesus, or both at the same time. It's not a problem. Now, the, the, the Pharisees said that Jesus was doing what is not lawful. Well, actually, where does the law in the Old Testament say it's not lawful to go into a grain field and pick grain? Deuteronomy 23, verse 25 says this, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain with your hand, but you must not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. So here the law clearly gives them the right to go into a field of grain that hasn't been harvested yet, and you can pluck heads of grain, but you can't put a sickle to it. The purpose of the law was is to help people on their journeys in case they got hungry, which is what happened here with the disciples, and to prevent abuses. You couldn't go into a neighbor's field and start harvesting because then you'd be stealing his grain. But it's not going to hurt somebody who owns a grain field to, to lose a little bit of grain to help people travel on their way. So the law made perfectly good sense. Now, Jesus could have just appealed to this law and said, look here, the law says we can go in. However, the law, this Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, doesn't say anything about doing it on the Sabbath. It just says, in general, you can do it. So then you could argue, or the Pharisees could argue, but the Sabbath laws overcome that because you're not supposed to work on Saturday and rubbing grain in your hands is, is working on Saturday. Now, of course, Jesus could have then have answered that and said, well, but that's not work. How can you say that's work? But that would have gotten into some legal, technical legal discussions. Jesus instead appeals to a, to a higher principle, the law of necessity and doing good to human beings and not letting the law become an obstacle to helping human beings instead of an aid to helping human beings. Now, it was definitely violating the rabbinic laws to pick that grain. 
The Mishnah said that harvesting was forbidden on the Sabbath, according to my NIV study Bible, and harvesting was technically what they were doing. That's what the NIV study Bible says. But John Gill says, no, it was not the servile work which is prohibited on the Sabbath because Deuteronomy 23:25 distinguishes clearly plucking and using a sickle. And so you could argue from that verse that what the Jews, what the disciples were doing was not doing work. They were just plucking. They weren't using a sickle. So you see, it could be argued, Jesus could argue that what they were doing was not violating the Sabbath. But Jesus was a great lawyer. I hate to say this. I hope it doesn't sound blasphemous. Jesus was a very good lawyer. I mean, he could have easily been a lawyer because he beat the, the rabbinic lawyers all the time in arguments. He, but he didn't go this right. He could have said, look, here's the scriptures on the Sabbath. Exodus 20:10. but the seventh day of the Sabbath to the Lord your God, you must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the foreigners within your gates. Exodus 35, 2 through 3, for six days work is to be done. But on the seventh day, you are to have a holy day, a Sabbath, a complete rest of the Lord. Anyone who does work on it must be executed. Do not light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath day. And Jesus could have said, oh, it doesn't say anything about picking grain. It just says, don't light a fire. Are you really going to execute us because we picked the neighbor's grain? Numbers 15, he could have done that, but he didn't. Numbers 15, 32 through 36, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses, Aaron, and the entire community. They placed him in custody because it had not been decided what should be done to him. Then the Lord told Moses, this man is to be, the man is to be put to death. The entire community is to stone him outside the camp. So the entire community brought him outside the camp to stone him to death as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so Jesus could say, look, this man was doing work, work, lifting up, uh, gathering logs. We were just plucking grains. That's not work. Could have gotten into some technical distinctions like that. So, and, and you notice my NIV study Bible disagrees with Gill on whether Jesus actually broke that, uh, broke the Old Testament law or not. It's, it's, it's a debatable question, but Jesus didn't go that route. Let's see what he did do in Matthew 12, verses 3 through 4. Through, Matthew 12, verses 3 through 4. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the sacred bread, which is unlawful for him and those with him to eat, but only for the priest? All right, so Jesus is appealing now to an instance in the Old Testament when David was being chased by Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. Let's read this in 1 Samuel 21, first six verses. David went to Ahimelech the priest at Nob. This is uh, just north of Jerusalem where uh, uh, where the tabernacle had been taken uh, for safekeeping up there. And it was at the house there of, of Ahimelech. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David, so he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king gave me a mission, but he told me, Don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. That was not exactly the truth. He was running from from Saul. I have stationed my young men in a certain place. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread, and consecrated bread was the bread that had been made according to the Levitical law and spread with the oil according to the Levitical law and so forth and been put into the on the table of showbread in the tabernacle. And it had to be replaced every Saturday because it got stale. And some of it had been replaced here. He says there is consecrated bread. At least it's arguable that it was the consecrated bread that had been replaced. And Ahimelech says, but the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. David answered him, this was part of their law, David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission, so of course their bodies are consecrated today. It's kind of like these 
heavyweight fighters won't have sex the night before they fight. They they believe that it'll cause them to lose the fight. I guess they get their energy drained or something. It's kind of an interesting thing. No sex before you go on, on, uh, and, into battle. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. That refers to the practice of removing the showbread every Saturday, every Sabbath. And so the priest gave him that consecrated bread, gave David, and he spread it. Five loaves, he spread it to his soldiers. Now, it doesn't say whether he, Ahimelech gave him the bread that was currently on the table of showbread or whether it was bread that had been removed. I don't think it really matters. The point is, is that he ate bread that he wasn't supposed to eat. Now, the Jews themselves, according to their rabbinic tradition, said that in case of hunger, both could be eaten. Both types of bread, bread that was still on the table or bread that had been removed could be eaten by those who weren't priests. Again, it's a, even the Pharisees and their the hard-hearted Pharisees in their law, they had exceptions for necessity, the law of necessity, which the English common law still has, the law of necessity. For example, a fireman can go in and, and destroy somebody's house if, it's, if that house is necessary to be destroyed to stop a fire from spreading through a whole neighborhood. It's a law of necessity. And the Pharisees had that. So the, the rabbis dispute whether... Uh, the next question is, is on what day was this showbread eaten? It doesn't say. We can infer that it was on the Sabbath because the showbread was removed and David ate, ate it. Or it sounds like it. Apparently he ate it, uh, the removed showbread. It's really hard to say for sure. So it's a, it's a jump. It's a logical assumption to say that it was on the Sabbath. In fact, the Jewish doctors and rabbis debate that, whether it was the Sabbath or not that it happened. Well, it doesn't matter. The point is, is he ate something that wasn't lawful for non-priests to eat. And Jesus is referring that to that story because he's defending the action of his disciples according to the law of necessity, which the Pharisees themselves had in their own law. It's okay to eat when somebody is is hungry. And, and he's going to continue this on in the chapter. We'll get to it in a minute. For example, when an ox is in the ditch and it's necessary to pull him out on a Sabbath, otherwise the ox is going to die, it's okay to do it. In fact, the Pharisees said it's all right to heal if somebody's going to die before the doctor can get to him on Sunday. It's all right to try to heal him on Saturday. Otherwise, you weren't supposed to. But there were exceptions on the law of necessity. So Jesus went, he didn't take his weaker argument by trying to argue about what's working on the Sabbath and what's not working on the Sabbath. He went straight to the law of necessity. And I guess he was saying, look, we were hungry. We had to eat. And so we plucked the grains in the grain field. Now, let's take a little harmony excursus here, harmonization excursus, because here, if we look at the parallel passage of Matthew 12, 3-4 in Mark, chapter 2, verses 25-26, through 26, we read this. He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions? Now you will notice that in that passage in Samuel, First uh, Samuel 21 that I read, it was Ahimelech, the priest, that gave the bread to David. And in Mark, it's Abiathar, the high priest. Or at least it sounds that way. Well, let's reconcile. Now, you know, liberals love to jump all over this. Hey, see, there's contradictions in the Bible. Bart Urban and all these people down at Duke University reaping up for themselves great rewards in the time when they're going to stand before God naked and hungry and without excuse for all the people's faith they have destroyed. This is what they, they always point this out. See there, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Actually, it can be reconciled quite easily. First of all, it will note, I'm going to give you a couple of options here. 
Option number one, 1 Samuel 21, 1 says it was Ahimelech the priest who gave the food to David, and Matthew says it was in the times of Abiathar. Well, first, a lot of times you can have two high priests. For example, in the case of the New Testament, you had Annas and Caiaphas, the old guy, I think it was Annas, was the father-in-law, if I remember correctly. He is old, so he passes the office down to his next high priest, but people, as an honorific title, kept calling him a high priest, even though he was gone, just like we call President Obama and President Bush, even though they're not presidents right now. So this could very well be in the times of Abiathar, the high priest. Ahimelech could have been the high priest before. He could have then given up his office to Abiathar, and Ahimelech could then give have given the bread to David during the times of his son Abiathar, the high priest. Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. That's one way to reconcile it. Another way to reconcile it is we have to notice in 1 Samuel 21.1, Samuel does not even say, or the author of the book of Samuel does not say that Ahimelech was the high priest. 1 Samuel 21.1 says this, David went to Ahimelech. David went to Ahimelech the priest. Not the high priest, but Ahimelech the priest. So we could just say Ahimelech was an ordinary priest who fed the shrewbed to David. Doeg the Edomite sent by Saul kills Ahimelech, and then his son Abiathar becomes priest. So all of this happened in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, right around that time. Notice it doesn't say when Abiathar was priest. It says in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, which means at the, at the time. Now, that's a very quick and dirty way to reconcile. Actually, you can read a bunch of stuff on this if you want to get into Bible harmonization. It's kind of interesting. But believe me, liberals are wrong, as they are always wrong when they say the Bible has errors in it. All right, so continuing with Jesus' defense. Well, I think I'll read the parallel passages here. No, I won't read the parallel passages here. I'll take that back. I don't have anything really to add. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read some scriptures that show that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Because remember, that's what his defense was. It's good to do, it's okay to do good things on the Sabbath if it's a necessity. And this is not only on the Mosaic law, but even on the principles of the rabbinic tradition. So Jesus had them twice. So let's look, and we're going to look at this in just a minute. The healing of the man with the right hand was paralyzed in the synagogue on Sabbath. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good? or to do what is evil, to save life or destroyed? And, of course, they didn't answer him. And then Jesus heals the guy. Because when he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath, he knew darn well it was lawful, for the, according to the rabbis, to heal on the Sabbath. It was necessary to save a life. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Skipping down a little bit, the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on these days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. You know, the woman's been sick for 18 years. She's healed instead of crying with joy. Hey, hey, she shouldn't have been healed on Sabbath. Arrogant jerk. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? In other words, if the ox is going to die because he can't drink, it's okay to let him drink. This woman's been healed sick for 18 years, and she's worth a lot more than a donkey. 
And so it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. And I've been saying doing good on the Sabbath in the case of necessity. This actually wasn't absolutely necessary. He could have healed, he waited till the next day and healed her on Sunday, I guess. So I guess the principle is a little bit stronger than healing on the Sabbath out of necessity. It's doing good on the Sabbath. It's okay to do good on the Sabbath. So, And then we go to Luke 14, verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, again it's on the Sabbath, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. Why? Because they knew it was okay to heal on the Sabbath. They knew if it meant to do good, they couldn't answer that. Now, technically, I'm going to show you in a minute, they did have some laws that said it was not okay to heal on the Sabbath. uh, But there were some cases where it was okay to heal on the Sabbath, especially when somebody's life was in danger. I don't know whether this man's life was in danger or not, but Jesus is just appealing to the general principle. It's okay, at least in some cases, according to your law, to heal on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says to them, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? You're going to call that working, pulling your ox out of the well or your son that's fallen into a well? Because it's doing good on the Sabbath. To this they could find no answer. Jesus shut them up. So anyway, that's the typically the way he uh, went against the Pharisees. When the Pharisees interpreted the law in such a narrow way and in such a way that technical legal principles were exalted over the purpose of the law, which is to help human beings, not to enslave them and not to harm them, he would always, that was the defense he would take. He wouldn't take technical defenses. He would go straight to the purpose of the law, which is to help, not to hurt. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 through 6. Jesus continues, Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priest in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? But I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, here he, again, is going to the fact that no law can be absolute. Sometimes there are other considerations that trump the application of the law. In this case, how are you going to have the priestly service uh, if, if you don't do it on the Sabbath? You've got to have priests killing animals and such on these Sabbath days. Otherwise, you're not going to have a temple service, and God set that up. Now, here he is sort of going back to the principle of what is work, what is work, rather than the law of necessity and doing good on the Sabbath. So I guess he did, he, he, he's secondarily going back to that argument. It's a pretty good argument, though, actually. And in fact, it's sort of an aspect of the idea of doing good on Sabbath because the priests were doing good. They were worshiping God, doing something that God had set up. And then Jesus said, but I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Well, if you could work in the temple, Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. And so I can pluck grain in the grain fields. Now, this is, this, I, I love this verse because if I've read Covenant Theology or Reformed Sabbath, Sunday Sabbatarians who say that the Ten Commandments, including the Fourth Commandment, is valid for Christians today and therefore we can't work on Sunday. And who does the most work on Sunday? I never saw Presbyterian preachers, anybody work harder than a Presbyterian preacher on Sunday. Their so-called Sabbath. They're up there telling us that we're not supposed to work on Sunday and they're working their buns off on Sunday. This is what always happens when you try to interpret the law in a situation in which it was never meant to be applied. It ends up screwed up and absurd and crazy. I mean, we're going to have Sunday Sabbatarian laws like the Reformed want us to have? Okay, well, what about the druggist? Are we going to have to make an exception for him? What if you need a drug on Sunday and you can't get it because nobody's working? How about if you need to travel somewhere? How about traveling on a Sunday, which is right before Christmas? Oh, no, we've got to shut everything down. Can't work. I've never seen a Presbyterian in my life that doesn't do that, not to mention watch the Super Bowl. But anyway, 
Let's go back to what Jesus says. They are innocent because they're working on the Sabbath. Here's an example in Numbers 28, verse 9. On the Sabbath they present two unblemished year old male lambs, four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its drink offering. Somebody has to prepare all that. Those lambs and fine flour mixed with oil and, and preparing the drink offering and so forth. Somebody had to do that, and it was priests, and they were working on the Sabbath. John Gill says the rabbis even had a saying, slaying drives away the Sabbath. In other words, killing those animals is more important than the Sabbath. It trumps the Sabbath laws. The rabbis even circumcised on the Sabbath, and they were innocent. Here's the scripture in John 7, verse 22 through 23. Consider this. Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? <laughs> so, so Jesus is getting at him about uh, the stupid definition of what work is on the Sabbath. Healing somebody's not work. It's doing good. Jesus said something greater than the Sabbath is here. I just uh, referred to that a minute ago and said that that was referring to Jesus himself because he was greater than the priest who worked on the Sabbath. So, therefore, he could pick grain on the Sabbath. Hebrews 3.3 3 says this, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. And this is the idea that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of Moses. He's, he can abrogate the Moses law anytime he wants to. Now, this, of course, gets into some heavy-duty theology here because Reformed Covenant theologians don't think that Jesus ever abrogated the law of Moses. I don't know how they can say that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a, a little bit later. But um, this verse right here kind of goes to that. Who's worthy of more glory? Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. So let's quit. You know, sure, anytime Jesus violated the rabbinic traditions, let's point that out. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's point out also that he could, if he so desired, overturn the law of Moses because he is the son of God. He can do it if he wants to. In fact, I'm going to show you in Mark 7 where he did do that. He might not have done it here because Jesus actually, you, you can't prove that the law of Moses said it was wrong to pluck grain on a Sabbath. So you can't show that he was overturning the law of Moses by plucking grain on the Sabbath. What he was doing, he was violating the traditions of the Pharisees. I will grant that freely. Nothing wrong with that. But there are some cases, and I'm going to show you one in just a minute, where Jesus actually overturned the law of Moses, not just the the uh, the traditions of the Pharisees. Now, some people say that something greater than the temple refers to not Jesus in general, but the human nature of Christ, because the Holy Spirit dwells in him, uh, and so he's the temple of the Holy Spirit now. The Old Testament temple uh, was supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is greater than that Old Testament temple in the same way that the antitype is greater than the type, especially since the Holy Spirit had left that Old Testament temple a long time before. I don't think so. I just think it's easy to say that Jesus is greater than the priest and he's here now. Or you could say that the health of Jesus' disciples is more important than the temples. So something more more important, uh, so, so that something greater than the temple is here, namely the health of my disciples is greater than the temple. That's John Gill being creative. I don't think that's true. Or the ministry of the apostles is more important than the temple. And so we've got to feed these apostles because they're more important than the temple. I think that's true, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's just saying, I'm greater than the temple, and I can pluck the grain if I want to. Bottom line. He uses other arguments, but that's the bottom line. Matthew 12, verse 7, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. His disciples were innocent in eating that grain. And if they had been concerned about those disciples and the fact that they were hungry, instead of worrying about your niggling interpretations of the law, if you had had a little bit of mercy 
you wouldn't have condemned them. Now, Jesus contrasts here mercy and sacrifice, and this is a common theme throughout the scriptures because the Jews were such externalists. They constantly focused on the external ritual and requirements of the law, sacrifice, but they ignored the point of the law, which is to show mercy to people, and they perverted the law. And so, and it was not only in Jesus' time, but in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to give you some scriptures that show this. Hosea 6, 6, for I desire loyalty, and the NIV says mercy. The Holman Christian Study Bible says loyalty. For I desire loyalty or mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, as we go through this, let's realize that the scripture is not making a contrast between we need to do mercy and we need to throw out the sacrifices. What it's saying is don't do the sacrifices alone without mercy, but do the sacrifices also with mercy. In other words, I desire loyalty and not merely sacrifice. Put that little word merely in front of sacrifice and it makes sense. But a lot of times people forget that and turn out to be true blue antinomians. First Samuel 15:22. then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? This is Samuel talking to Saul when he didn't kill Agag. Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Matthew 9:13. go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. That was when uh, the Pharisees were complaining about Jesus eating with the tax collectors. Matthew, if I remember correctly, Matthew gathered a bunch of them to have a big feast. Micah 6, Verses 6 through 8, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a famous verse. We often don't notice that the prelude to that verse is, I don't want just burnt offerings and cows and rams and streams of oil. We're referring to the oil that's in the uh, Levitical ritual, the firstborn that you have to uh, dedicate to the Lord and all that stuff, all that Levitical Levitical laws of sacrifice. Micah says, I'm not, now it doesn't mean that he's not, he doesn't want that to be done. Otherwise, he wouldn't have set it up and asked him to do it. It was necessary to do it, but not to merely do it and forget that you got to love and, and, and love justice and you need to be faithful and you need to walk humbly with God. In other words, the personal spiritual characteristics you need when you offer those sacrifices. And, of course, the modern analogies. Don't go to church on Christmas and Easter and be full of adultery and hatred and, and oppression in your heart and that kind of thing. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus mocked two things about the Pharisees. First of all, he mocked their knowledge. If you had known what this means, and, of course, the Pharisees were very proud of all their knowledge, and Jesus said, you don't know anything. And then he mocked their humanity. You wouldn't have condemned the the innocent if you'd have known what it meant to desire mercy. You don't have any mercy, Pharisees, and you're stupid, which they were. Matthew 12, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Son of Man is a messianic title. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's never used by anyone else except Jesus alone. Uh, Jesus used it as a messianic title to describe himself. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where it says he, one like the son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days as God and was escorted before him. It's a Babylonian term that Daniel picked up serving in Babylonia, a Persian term, I should say, uh, serving in Susa in Persia. And, it, and the Persian term meant uh, the son of man is the prince who's coming to take the authority of the king. And here we have the prince, Jesus, approaching the ancient of days, the king, to take authority, to rule, 
and glory and a kingdom so that every people, nation, and language should serve him. So it's, that's where the title Son of Man comes from. Okay? I could tell you a lot more than that, but I'm running short of time. It says the Son of Man, i.e. the Messiah, is Lord of the Sabbath. So he has the authority to change the laws regarding, regarding the Sabbath. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, of course, this gets touchy theologically because there's a strong theological tradition. The Reformed people say, no, 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 you can't touch the Old Testament laws. Now, he had already beaten the Pharisees on the basis of the existing law. And so now it sounds like this is an a fortiori or argument. He says, well, I've already beaten you on the basis of the existing law. But even if I lost on that principle, even if I couldn't show you that the law, of, that I'm not contradicting the law of Moses, I could have contradicted the, Lord, Lord of, the law of Moses if I wanted to because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Because I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah. So this is the crowning argument of the, of the case. Here's John Gill, as he is Lord of all other, th other things, he is of the Sabbath, and has the power of dispensing with it, and even of abolishing it. Ooh, that's good language, but listen to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, good reformed people that they were. In what sense now is the Son of Man Lord of the Sabbath day? Not surely to abolish. That surely were a strange lordship, especially just after saying that it was made or instituted for man. But to own it, to interpret it, to preside over it, and to ennoble it, by merging it into the Lord's day, that's Sunday, breathing into it an air of liberty and love necessarily unknown before, and thus making it the nearest resemblance to the eternal sabbatism to which I say, baloney sausage, this is bullgashitki. I don't know why in the world, I, I just listened to a reform podcast, it was, it was on the Sabbath, and I listened to this thing, and the more this guy talked, the more, and of course they're learned theologians, all of them, the more they spin their tails and try to figure out how Saturday became Sunday. Well, we can't have it on Saturday because that would offend the Jews, so we've got to switch it to Sunday, even though the Bible never says that anywhere. And despite the fact that Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, which means I can do it however I want to. So, so uh, I, I'd just like to know, how do the Reformed, who maintain the eternality of the Mosaic Law, how do they handle this verse? They say the Law of Moses runs into the New Covenant, but Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Moses says, worship on Saturday. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and then the Reforms, worship on Sunday, and then claim that Moses is still in charge here. Uh, and I don't know how they handle that verse. This is another good verse since we're on the subject. Mark 7:19. how do the Reformed Covenant theologians handle this one? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, talking about food, then out of the body, talking about pooping. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, now, if Jesus declared all foods clean and Moses declared some foods unclean, did Jesus abrogate the law of Moses in that area? I believe so. Now, of course, what the Reformed people can say, well, you know, that's the ceremonial law. That's not the moral law. And the moral law remains where the ceremonial law goes away. Well, I haven't got time to get. If you want an interesting study of covenant versus new covenant theology and dispensationalism, you can look at my YouTube videos. I've got I don't know, 25 videos on the subject. So we got to stop here and not talk about that anymore. Matthew 12, verses 9 through 10. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And of course, they're still following him around, trying to trip him up, trying to find anything they can to nail him. Now, he, they asked him a question, is it, is it okay, to, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And actually, the rabbis permitted healing on the Sabbath if it, were, if it were feared that the man would die, the sick man would die the next day. This is according to my NIV study Bible. The man with the paralyzed hand was not going to die the next day, so technically, Jesus would be violating the rabbinic law to heal on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus didn't mind doing that. He violated the rabbinic law all the time. Now, I'm going to give you an example of how stupid these rabbinic laws are. This is from John Gill, who's a rabbinic expert. Quote, if a man had an ailment in his throat, he might not gargle it with oil, but he might swallow a large quantity of oil, and if he was healed, he was healed, i.e., it was very well, it was no breach of the Sabbath. In other words, it's okay. You can't gargle on the Sabbath with oil to try to heal your sore throat, but you can swallow the oil to heal on the Sabbath. They may not chew mastic. I don't know what mastic was. They may not uh, nor rub the teeth with spice on the Sabbath day when it is intended for healing. But if it is intended for the savor of his mouth, it is free. In other words, if you rub your teeth with spice because it tastes good, no problem. But if you rub your teeth with spice because you're trying to heal a sore in your gum or something, that's healing. That's bad. Utter nonsense. Moving on from there, it says in verse 9, that was the grain field where he picked grain on the Sabbath. So these these stories are all hooked together with uh, so-called violations of the Sabbath. This is probably another Sabbath day, according to John Gill, because in Luke 6, verse 6, parallel passage, it says on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue. We also learn from that parallel passage that the man whose hand was paralyzed, it was his right hand, which is most probably his work hand, which would make his case even more pitiable and even more necessary to be healed. Well, anyway, Jesus went into this situation. He wasn't afraid of the Pharisees at all. He knew they were following him and trying to trap him, and he just went right into their teeth and led with his chin, which is why I really love to watch Jesus work with the Pharisees. Now, notice this question they asked him in verse 10. Is it lawful? Were they asking for information? No, they were asking for the purpose of trapping him. They asked from malice. They were trying to ensnare him as a lawbreaker so they could charge him before the Sanhedrin. We learn from the parallels of this healing of the man with the right paralyzed hand. I'm going to try to not read them all to save time. Jesus told the man, stretch out your hand. Uh, excuse me, let me, let, me give you, let me back up a little bit. Is it lawful to... Well, let me just read it from the beginning. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the paralyzed hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And why were they silent? Because they couldn't answer and they knew that it was lawful. In many cases in the rabbinic law to do good on the Sabbath. Serve the priest serving in the temple, for example, to get the a son falls in the well, you can pull him out. They were silent. They couldn't answer him. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, this is one of the few times that we see Jesus' emotions in all of this. He was angry at them, and for good reason. And, and by the way, it's okay to be angry. It's not a sin to be angry. Otherwise, we'd say Jesus was sinning. It's all right to be angry at unrighteousness and brutality and cruelty. He told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. I'll talk about the Herodians a little bit later. In Luke chapter 6, we see in verse 11, they, the Pharisees, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Filled with rage. The man has gotten healed with a paralyzed hand. He was a disabled, poor guy. He couldn't work. He's healed, and what do the rabbis do? They say, we're going to kill Jesus instead of having love and compassion. These people were bastards of the highest order. They were not good people, folks. Are you listening all day, all you Messianic Jews who go around telling people that the Pharisees were good people? No, they were not. They killed Jesus, and they did things like this. The synagogue, by the way, incidentally, might be the one at Capernaum. They're not sure. It might be another one. Now, why did Jesus go into the synagogue in verse 9 in the first place? Well, he could have gone to teach, to worship at the synagogue, to teach there, or he could have gone there for the purpose of effecting a cure. We're not really sure, but 
at any rate, he took advantage of the situation and, and, and healed a man. Many people say that Jesus deliberately provoked the Pharisees by doing what he knew they would consider illegal on the Sabbath so he could show that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that he was Lord of all their rabbinic traditions, and that those rabbinic traditions were cruel, unhealthy, and ungodly. Matthew chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. But he said to them, again, he's answering the Pharisees who accused him for healing the man's right hand, paralyzed right hand. But he said to them, to the Pharisees, What man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus says it's lawful, I'm not sure whether he means it's lawful according to the Pharisees. I suspect he means it's lawful according to the law of Moses. And But he appeals to the fact that even the Pharisees, with all their strict laws, even they would not let a sheep die in a pit, or in another case, a son die in a well, or an ox die in a well. They're not going to do that. And so Jesus answered them. He hoisted them on their own petard. He answered them according to their own law, and he said, look, if your law would allow it, why don't you allow me to do, allow me to do good on the Sabbath? Mark chapter 3, verse 4 is a parallel passage here. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. I think I've already read that. They were silent. They couldn't answer him. Now, Jesus is making, is, uses some good irony here. You know, he's doing good on the Sabbath, but healing, they're going out with the Herodians planning to kill him, filled with rage, trying to kill him. Talk about doing good, doing evil. He's healing. They're planning murder. Now, after the times of Christ... And this is debatable as to whether this, far, this rabbinic rule came after Christ or before Christ. John Gill says it came after. Let's read this. If a beast fall into a ditch or a pool of water, if food can be given it where it is, they feed it till the going out of the Sabbath. But if not, bolsters and pillows may be brought and put under it. And if it come out, if it can come out, it may come out. In other words, if you can keep that donkey alive by feeding him, keep him in the ditch until Saturday's over, and then you can get him out on Sunday, which to me is absurd, as most of this rabbinic laws is. And after all, aren't you working when you feed the ox? Put bolsters and pillows under them to make him comfortable? Is that work? Wouldn't it be just simple just to pull him out of the ditch? But if the, if the ox is going to die, you can pull him out before he dies. Now, some people say that this rabbinic law was in response to what Jesus said here. Clark says it was before Jesus came, and Jesus appealed to it. And either way... It doesn't make any difference. If it was before, then the Pharisees, by their own law, are admitting that in some cases, if that ox is going to die, it's all right to pull him out. And so even by their own law, Jesus has got him. Let's go to Matthew 12, verses 13 through 14. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Well, this is the ultimate answer to the Pharisees. I just healed the man of paralysis. And you think you're traditions are greater than that i'm the lord of the sabbath i just heal somebody and i did it on the sabbath and who, who are you to tell me what i can do and not do on the sabbath now he didn't break the sabbath as i said he never broke moses law he didn't do any servile labor which the law forbid to do on sabbath he didn't even touch the man i mean if the if the priest can minister in the tabernacle and sacrifice animals and they and they don't break the law surely jesus didn't break the law all he did is said be healed and that's it that's not working so not breaking the Sabbath made his position against the Pharisees even stronger. By not breaking Moses' law, it made his position against the Pharisees even stronger. Even though he technically broke the Pharisees' law, their tradition had loopholes in it. For example, the ox in the ditch, I just told you, if he's going to die, you can pull him out. It was understood that it was okay to heal in life-threatening situations. Even though this situation wasn't life-threatening, 
the Pharisees had still opened the door by admitting that in some cases you can do work on the Sabbath and you can do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm doing good on the Sabbath. So even according to your law, I'm not guilty. And even if I was guilty according to your law, I don't care because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when you go to, he didn't break the law of Moses here. But I said, you know, in some, in other places, he, he, you can make the argument that he did break the law of Moses, but he didn't do it here. So he had a pretty strong argument against the these Pharisees. They were arrogant bastards who couldn't beat him in debate, so they decided to kill him. Now, they allied themselves with Herodians. Who are these Herodians? Here's some options on who they were. They were Gentiles under the rule of Herod. That's unlikely. Herod the Great, who's dead now, but of course his son Herod Antipas is ruling up there in Galilee. They were dead. Uh, they were uh, Gent- uh, Gentiles still around who could have been being ruled by Herod, but it's unlikely that Pharisees would ally themselves with Gentiles. They could have been Gentile proselytes like Herod. They could have been Sadducees. You look at two verses, Matthew 16:6 6 and Mark 8:15. It sounds like they're the same as the Pharisees, as, as the Sadducees. Excuse me. Mark, Matthew 16, 6. Then Jesus told them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then Mark 8, 15. Then he commanded them, Watch out beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. So it sounds like Sadducees and Herod is in parallel there. But on the other hand, you can look at Matthew 22 and you can see that there are distinctions between the Sadducees and the Herodians. The same day, some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came up to him and questioned him. That's verse 23 in Matthew 22. Verse 16 in Matthew 22, they sent their disciples to him, that's the Sadducees, with the Herodians, which sounds like the Herodians are separate from the Sadducees, and I think that proves it right there. They were a different group. Uh, Some people say they were advocates of a new religion combining Judaism and Gentile practices. Some some speculate that it was people who thought Herod was the Messiah, which is I think is absurd. Herod was such a nasty man who would think he was the Messiah, Herod the Great. Some people say it's a group who were paying taxes to Herod rather than than to Caesar. Well, maybe so. He was. Some people say it was a group who advocated paying taxes to Rome. That was a touchy issue with the Jews, of course. They were constantly, some of them were trying to rebel against Rome like the Zealots, and some of them, like the Sadducees, wanted to suck up to Rome, and the Herodians might have been a special party that wanted to suck up to Rome. J. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said these Herodians were supporters of Herod's dynasty created by Caesar. A political rather than a religious party, the Pharisees regarded them as untrue to their religion and country. But here we see them combining together against Christ as a common enemy. The Herodians didn't like Jesus. They didn't want to have a revolution, a messianic revolution against the Roman Empire to whom they were sucking up. So... And the Pharisees hated Jesus because he attacked their old traditions. Jesus had enemies everywhere. Some people say they were the courtiers and domestics of Herod. I guess that's Herod Antipas. I don't, I don't know whether that's Herod Antipas or Herod the Great, surviving courtiers and domestics. I don't. Nobody really knows who they are, but they obviously they're political. And why would it be advantageous for the Pharisees to suck up to them to get the Herodians on their side? Well. If the Herodians are aligned with the Roman government, which it sounds like they are, the Pharisees could then accuse Jesus of treason and sedition, which is what they're trying to do. And remember, when the Pharisees went to the Romans and started complaining about Jewish law and Jesus breaking the law, remember the typical Roman response? I think it was Pontius Pilate. He said, well, I don't care about that. Leave me alone. But now the Herodians, they're different. They don't, they, they're more worried about political upheaval. Okay, from their name, at least it's obviously supported Herod, and Herod was famous because he... He was well noted for being a puppet of the Roman government. And by the way, the Fa- that wasn't the only time the Pharisees plotted with the Herodians. Another time in Matthew 22, they did the same thing. Then the Matthew 22, verses 15 through 16, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. So they 
It was an unholy alliance to get Jesus, to get this terrible man who claims he's the Messiah. All right, here's, there was an interesting detail. I think I might have read it to you, maybe not. In the parallel passage, Luke 6 through 11, they, the Pharisees, were filled with rage when Jesus healed the paralytic's right hand and when he said, is it not okay to do good on the Sabbath? Which one of you would not take a sheep that had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath and lift it out? All right, ladies and gentlemen, that finishes the Sabbatarian controversies in Matthew 12. We'll take up Matthew 12, 1 through 14. We'll start with verse 15 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.